get it started. I'm a little slow. Oh, there it goes. Uh, so, all right. So, um, as a, as a basic uh, teaching, let us look at the words um, concentration that you brought up, because that seems to be a, an important quality of Western practices. Uh, but the word samadhi actually means gathering together the factors and that an example would be um, an easy one would be uh, an American teepee, American Indian teepee has all of these poles and that the bottom of the poles are, st are stuck around but all at the top they are gathered to one point, a samadhi point. In the suttas, they talk about it in, in the sense of a tent or a yurt. You know what a yurt is, right? A yurt, Mongol yeah. A Mongolian yeah. yurt. It's like a okay. leather. It has a, a center pole, and then all of the other um, roofing poles are spaced around, but they all come together in the middle at that one point. That point is a samati point. It means to gather all of the factors together, and then they can rest on each other. That if you take a stick and put it in the air, or let us say you just put it in the ground uh, straight up, that stick's going to fall. It's going to fall because of gravity. So we have like the factors around the core. Okay, so you pillar. put two sticks together like this, and now they're stable this way, but they can still fall this way. But if you put a pole over here, now you can have a little triangle, and triangle uh, are fairly stable, like a three-cornered uh, stool. But then you add a fourth leg, and now it's got even more stability. And so that's the way that we look at it, is that these factors we're bringing together actually help stabilize the situation. Now, there are several places where we use the word samadhi, and in the Eightfold Noble Path, it's used in the following way. That's, that uh, sama area samadhi can actually be understood as unification of mind. When all of the factors of the mind come together in unity, now the mind is unified. So let me give you some examples of how a mind would not be unified. Doubt. If there's any doubt, is it this or is it that, will help tear up the mind. We're staying in a state of confusion or in, in doubt. That's not a comfortable place to be in. So it would be like a state of knowing as opposed to doubt a or like a unification? that you don't know, which is okay, a whole lot of better know. It's different than, than confusion. Than don't know that you don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I guess I don't under I don't understand that difference between like knowing that you don't know and confusion. But I'm I mean over time. Well, no, not knowing that you don't know is delusion, denial. Okay. So you think you know, but thinking you don't. You know. Gotcha. Okay. So you don't know that you don't know. And I guess there'd be like the other form of don't know where you're like kind of pulling your hair out and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what is going on. Confusion. Confusion. Okay, that'd be more of a confusion. Yeah. And if in a state of confusion, that would keep the mind from being unified. And so we're okay. 
is unified like a rare state for people, or is that? Most people are scattered. Most people are, are a crowd. Most people will go from one feeling to the next feeling to the next feeling, and they don't even know that they're not the same person. You see, we have a mistaken idea about what personality is, that everybody kind of thinks that their personality is, is set. This is, in fact, the whole belief system about rebirth is what is it that's reborn? And it has to do with various elements of the personality. But when we dig deep into that personality, we recognize there's really no self in there anywhere. But yeah, that's so the good like, news. Because the good news is, is that not only is the personality fluid, and it can be changed, but that not only what, uh, is it possible to be changed, it's been changing all along and people haven't been noticing it. Okay, that makes sense. It's already flexible. It's just kind of bouncing around. It's in like an ununified state. It's like, oh, there's anger. Oh, there's uh, confusion. Exactly. But when we come to a unified state, then we will find basically uh, a very, very narrow range of feelings. A narrow range of feelings, a like narrow the, range of feelings that go from joy to more joy and a little less joy. So a unified mind would be like free of, well, like greed, anger, or like kind of those baser, like free from suffering, precisely free from suffering. Okay. Yeah, free from dukkha in all forms. So hmm. another way of saying that a mind would be ununified is when we would be lying we lie to somebody about something or if we lie to ourselves about something that means that we know what's real and we don't like it we're not unified with it we're trying to separate ourselves from the truth we don't like the truth and so we're not in a state of unification when we're uh lying since you brought up uh lying like can a unified mind like do harm or like do bad i guess Actually, the way that we're talking about it, um, there is always unintentional consequences. Yeah, like unforeseen but consequences. like un Unforeseen uh, consequences. The military would call it collateral damage. But you wouldn't say, like, willingly steal from somebody or, um, right. like, wouldn't willingly harm somebody. Exactly. That's one of the examples. If your mind is unified and you're a state of homeostasis, if you're in a state of satisfaction, then you don't want anything. So if you want something you don't have and you want it bad enough that you're willing to steal it to get it, that's certainly not a unified mind. Okay, so yeah, it's not like that you are just free of emotions. There's like a certain quality to that or like... um. Yeah, I, I'm not too clear, or, like, my thoughts aren't too clear on that. It's not exactly just that you are, like, free of the, like, mortal coil or, like, and that you're free to do whatever you want. There are some things that you would, like, not want to partake in, like, in a unified mind state. Do you kind of see where I'm coming from? Yes, let's say it this way, and that is, is that uh, the human being is not always human in the sense of using the highest quality or the best part of the human mind or the human brain that most people are lazy and so they live instinctually. They follow their heart rather than figuring out what's supposed to be done.
So you have basically you have the uh, wisdom versus emotion. And most people live their lives emotionally. Uh, emotions can be easily manipulated. And so people, because they live their lives emotionally, they're easily manipulated. And that they, uh, they live their lives emotionally because they haven't woken up to use wisdom to figure out what's the right way to go. So as we gain wisdom, we begin to not destroy the uh, instincts and the emotions out of the instincts. Rather, we begin to overpower them and make them friends and pets. We're not going so we can think of that we've got a really wild dog that barks and bites and does all kinds of things. We don't want to kill the dog. We want to tame the dog. Is that kind of a reflection of like you brought up friendship earlier? So there, there's like external friendship among like you know people. Now we're talking about internal friendship. And then internal friendship with like I guess all the parts that we generally kind of consider make up our personality. Mm-hmm. And so okay. by making yeah. friends with that stuff and taking power over it, that means that we are no longer overpowered with anger. I am angry means that uh, there's a person. Um, a self there that uh, is part of the package, I am angry. But we can separate ourselves out through right practice of Anapanasati, which we'll talk about it a great deal later, and say, aha, uh-huh, I see you, anger. I am not the anger. The anger is just a feeling. But I am not that angry. You see, but most people, when they're angry, they say, I am angry, and they think that I, the that that that's part of their personality. Yeah, I mean, I definitely fall into that trap. <laughs> or maybe not, you know, yeah, but okay. yeah, where like you identify with, you know, the parts that kind of, or like not the parts, but like, yeah, you identify with the emotions that come through most often. Uh-huh. So if every emotion is around and every emotion has enough power to gain control, then each time that we feel a different way, we're a different person, and there's no unification there. Yeah, or, sorry, I missed that last part. We're like, if we're pulled, there's no unification if we're like being pulled between the emotions. Is that what you said? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Gotcha. So, so I'm greedy, and that's one feeling that pulls me out of unification of mind. I'm angry, and that pulls me out of unification of mind. Or I'm lying, and that pulls me out of unification of mind. And so I'm giving you all of the various ways of looking at it from a negative position of what is not organization of mind so that we can now begin to understand how we bring about this unification of mind. And so this sutta that I'm speaking of starts off with uh, the Buddha saying, listen closely, monks, I'm going to teach you right unification of mind with its supports and requisites. Now, basically what I mean by requisites uh, can be thought of in two ways, and that is prerequisites or postrequisites. And I'm going to look at it more kind of as postrequisites. And so uh, to divide the Eightfold Noble Path out, we start with right uh, view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And when we bring these things together, that brings about unification of mind. 
once the mind is completely unified then one will naturally abstain from doing things that would be listed as part of the precepts in other words if i don't hate or uh, or i'm angry at anyone then i'm not going to harm them if i don't want anything i'm not going to steal from them if i can understand that a girl is beautiful and she really worked hard to be beautiful but i don't want her then i'm unlikely to cause her husband grief but if i want her now he's going to get jealous never mind how close to her i actually get but if we don't want anything then we can stay at our state of unification of mind so this is the way that we look at the precepts not from the bottom up but these are a set of rules that you've got to keep in order to be a good buddhist we're looking at it from the perspective of once you do have the teaching of the Buddha in mind, you will naturally abstain from those things. Okay, yeah, I guess like I've been kind of thinking of it a little wrong, or a little sideways, where it's like, okay, you follow the you know the five precepts in order to like cultivate that mind, but it's really kind of the opposite. You do these things, See, and actually, then, like, the, the baggage of kind that. of. And there are many, many opposites within the teachings of the Buddha from the, uh, uh, the Western Buddhism that has sprung up. And, and this, is, this is one of them. But you can see, in fact, that uh, a society has to teach its children because children are not wise enough to see for themselves what is right behavior. And so they're given a list of rules. The children are given a list of rules, but we would hope by the time that they grow up, they don't need any rules anymore because they have wisdom to see how to live correctly. So is there sort of like a meeting in the middle there where like, you know, the kids grow up like under would, these rules, but then they kind of realize through their own? Sorry, what are you saying? It would be a gradual process to come out of doing things because there's a rule for it into doing things because wisdom indicates that this is the right way to live are you saying that you it requires both approaches so like for example i like eating pizza and like but i know that kind of you know hurts me physically to eat pizza all the time well let us say it this way is um giving children a set of rules and guidance will help society i'm not sure how valuable it is for the child himself okay but we give kids rules because we don't want to have to suffer the consequences of them not following our rules yeah it'd be kind of hard to have a lot of unruly kids running around you can't teach them in school you got to tell them you shut up you sit down and you pay attention to what's going on or i'm going to find somebody to do something to you that you won't like I'm going to tell your parents or I'm going to take you to the office or something, you know. So always the idea of punishment is built into it uh, for not keeping the rules. Basically, what it means is it all has to do with the law of karma. Good actions give good results and bad actions give bad results. That's what we're taught, right? But the Buddha is a little more wise than that. He recognizes, oh no, that may not be the only kind of actions there are. But this is the way that we teach the kids is, is that I don't like your action. 
Therefore, I claim that it's a bad action, and now I'm going to give you a spanking so that you experience the results of your bad action. But I'm the one who labeled it as a bad action. Mm. Okay, so there's always with this good and bad some sort of authority um, out there someplace. Um, And so basically what we're looking at is to let's find a method so that we can see really what's going on rather than merely following a set of rules that someone else has given us. Sure. This is basically what's really happening is we need to find out for sure what's going on and that the uh, following the Eightfold Noble Path then is a method to do this. Because the first part of the path, uh, or the first point, or the first step of the Eightfold Noble, uh, excuse me, of the Four Noble Truths is to recognize that there is dissatisfaction. And there's a cause for this dissatisfaction. But there's also a state where we are not in a state of dissatisfaction, that we're kind of good to go. That happens throughout our lives. When we're kids, we feel generally good most of the time. By the time we're adults, we're in dukkha, or we're in a state of dissatisfaction, probably 80, 90 percent of the time. Some people are in dissatisfaction 100 percent of the time, and when they do, they get no peace, no rest. These are the kind of guys that wind up being uh, deep inside the jail or in solitary confinement, or they're CEOs of companies who have a heart attack or a stroke early, They're just driven and driven and driven and driven to the point of um, death. But most people, almost everyone, in fact, does have a few moments every day where they can relax. People relax when they're having a meal. They actually enjoy it. Or we can relax it by having entertainment, by taking our our, our mind off of our own lives, by watching some movie or something and so we can become distracted from our own suffering and we can come into a state of natural uh, joy, laughter but then when the movie's over we go right back into all of the stuff like leaving the movie theater and, and driving home and all of that kind of stuff and so we naturally will move back and forth between a state of satisfaction and unsatisfaction but too much time we spend in a state of being dissatisfied. So right view, then, when we start talking about the Eightfold Noble Path itself, is right view is to understand these Four Noble Truths and understand that we, in fact, can come out of it. That's one's right view uh in the beginning but as we grow and mature in the dhamma the right view will grow and expand an example of that is like um there is a movie called cool hand luke where luke uh escapes from the uh penitentiary that's in the swamps of uh, louisiana and he's running away and they get the the bloodhounds after him And, you know, the bloodhounds, they can travel the scent. They can go with their nose back and forth with um, what is called stereoscopic um, uh, uh, odor uh, detection. They can 
follow the path. They can figure out where the guy goes. But that movie was done back in the 1960s. If that did, if they did that movie today, the uh, warden would just get his drone out and go look around and say, "Oh, there he is!" <laughs> right? This is one's right view is to get our mind off of the ground and and get a higher view of things. So if you're in a meeting, each individual person in that meeting normally sees that meeting from their own perspective, their own point of view. And because of that, if you've got 10 people in a meeting, that means that there's probably 10 or 11 realities. Each individual one has their own viewpoint of what happened in that meeting. And then you have the TV camera recording of actually what happened in the meeting. Normally, we don't have that. Normally, all we have is everyone's own opinion, which is based upon a very narrow frame of work or frame of view, their normal viewpoint which is not noble, it's ordinary. And so we'll talk about uh, views um, a little bit later, but I'm trying to give you kind of an overall idea of right view, right sati. Sati is the main one. This is the one that we have to spend the most time with. This is the skill that's the most important. Why? Because if we don't have sati, then we can't do any of the other things. What is sati? To remember to wake up, to come awake, so that we can see what's going on. Once we become awake, now we can do something about it, like taking right effort. And the right effort then would be to come out of that uh, state of, of dukkha. And once we come out of that state of dukkha, then we have the right attitude, I can come out of dukkha, I can be satisfied. Because very few people have that attitude. Most people have the attitude of being a victim, the attitude of a loser, the attitude of, for instance, I am angry, means that the anger is important. So I was thinking, so it's like right view, right effort, then right... Um, Shanti. Sati. Shanti. That, the, the word sati that I'm giving you is the word that's been wrongly translated into English as mindfulness. Okay, and sati is our ability to wake up and wake kind of up. see things as they are. And to see things as they are, to wake up. And then up. there's right perception, which is on the other side of that. Or, or is that what, do you say right uh, perception? Perception is not a part of the Eightfold Noble oh, Path directly. Okay, so there was, uh, so right Right view, sati. Right view. Right sati. Okay, right, right sati. View. And right sati means to wake up, to see what's going on, followed then by right, right effort. attitude. Oh, right effort, okay. Right effort. The effort is, in fact, to throw the dukkha out of the mind and also to take a deep breath. Now, within the Mahasi method, and I think that there is some reason, in fact, I'll go ahead and let you in on it. There is an injunction that monks cannot tell laymen what level of attainment that they have. That's just a taboo. There are several reasons for it, and one of them is, is that if the lay people think that a monk is better than other monks, then they're more than likely to give him more donations than the others. 
which is causing a bit of a, a problem. So if all the monks are seen to be the same, then everybody is willing to generate uh, or be generous to all the monks. So if a monk is actually bad, we don't even want to tell the parents because they would become embarrassed and drag him out of the Sangha. And in fact, six months from now, he may be a really excellent monk. Hmm. So we don't want to tell the problems of monks. In fact, the whole quality of the Sangha is to come out of our mentality of punishment for doing wrong, because that's just a human being saying that, well, I'm going to make sure that the law of karma exists and I see you've done something wrong, therefore I'm going to punish you. Okay, and this is the whole system of our prisons. Our prisons in the United States have nothing to do with rehabilitation and everything to do with punishment. But the, the Dhamma is all about rehabilitation. If we've done something wrong, we recognize that we've done something wrong, and we make a strong determination, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's the right education. But if you, uh, like a criminal, if he's a, a, a burglar and you put him in jail and when he gets out, he doesn't know anything to do except go back and be a burglar again. And so you have that same repeating thing over and over again. How can they rehabilitate him so that he's no longer a burglar? Well, for one thing, you don't want to put him in prison because if he's in prison, he's in with all the other burglars. He's just going to learn how to be a better burglar in prison. Yeah, yeah, he's going to have the same, like, worldview as everybody else in there. Right, exactly. So the Dhamma is, let's rehabilitate the mind. Let's find out what the problems actually are and then fix them directly. This is what uh, right effort is really all about. It's how you effort is rehabilitating it. Sorry, uh, like the right effort's like how we rehabilitate the mind, like kind of that prisoner yes. that's like used to doing wrong. Yes, exactly. Now, this actually does require a full waking up. I started to teach this way because of um, various things that I've seen with students, and that is when you wake up in the morning and you get, and uh, when you first wake up, you generally don't get right out of bed. You generally, when you wake up in the morning, you either reset the snooze alarm or whatever, and you roll over and, and you kind of go back to bed, right? Only later do you fully wake up enough to where you have now the energy or the effort to actually get up out of bed. That happens every morning, right? Yeah, I mean, it's every morning. Yeah, <laughs> so in fact, what we're talking about is even in physical wake and uh, uh, sleep and awake, it's a process. It's not it's like not an on like or off we, switch. It's yeah, kinda, it's not an on and off scale. switch. It's it's uh, uh, on a on a dial, I guess, is the way of talking about it. Well, sati uh, in meditation operates the same way. That many times students will wake up. But they won't wake up completely. They'll only wake up enough to know that they're in dukkha. They'll only wake up enough to know that there it is. And so uh, this is what gives rise to the idea that uh, it's okay to watch the dukkha. I think that that's the, the reason that that has become popular as an idea in the West is because uh, the, the, the really good meditation teachers 
don't actually teach the jhanas correctly because if they teach the first jhana correctly, then that's an indication that that teacher knows that first jhana, which is now kind of breaking the tattoo, taboo. But there's a difference between saying, I know first jhana and I will teach you first jhana is completely different than listen closely and we'll discuss first jhana because that's the right approach. But deep inside the student's mind is going to say, well, if this guy, if I'm going to trust this guy to talk to about first jhana, I assume that he knows first jhana. This is part of the reason why the jhanas then are not taught to lay people. But uh, it's a technicality. But in fact, um, the first jhana is the, the path. So when, when students hear about the jhanas, they start uh, reading and listening to people who haven't really, you know, it's, it's more like an intellectual topic now. And some people will even say that jhanas haven't been done for centuries and nobody's been enlightened for centuries and all of that kind of stuff. And it, it has a little bit to do with this quality of, of the taboo that it's only within the Sangha that this stuff is allowed to be taught. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, no, now it's time to let this stuff out of the bag. Let's, let's, uh, let's not keep it uh, quiet anymore. Uh, it's time for the world to know the actual teachings of the Buddha, which we call the supramundane Dhamma. What we mean by supramundane, the Pali word means um, uh, loka tara. Loka is the world, and Tara is above the world. To come out of the world of feelings and into the world, basically coming out of the world of the animals and the society of the human animal into being fully human. So it's that ability to like step into right view? Precisely, or not to step into, but rather develop, develop right view. Develop right view, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And then, so the John is, um, you don't, so you're saying you don't say like, this is like the step-by-step guide to get to John's because that's, doesn't work. Well, it's not necessarily a step-by-step, but it does have the quality of gathering the factors together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just like there are four factors gathered together to make an org, uh, the unified mind in, uh, the eightfold noble path of right view, right sati, uh, right effort and right attitude come bring this together. The way that we practice that is by bringing the mind into first jhana because that uh, in first jhana the mind is organized. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so if we have all of the factors of first jhana then we, the mind is in first jhana and that means that the mind is now unified and fit for work. So the way that we get to uh, this first jhana is through these four factors of right view, right sati, right effort, and right uh, attitude. These are key points, and they're all skills to be developed. Now, the method that we're going to use is the method is called anapanasati. And here is how that basically goes. Is, is that we have these four foundations of mindfulness, the body, the feeling, the mind, and the mind objects. And that this is all about uh, training or 
becoming friends with or learning how to influence and control these four elements. So basically what we're doing now is we're going to start using the breath as an object of the body because the first thing that we're going to learn to control is the breathing. And yet, uh, in the Mahasi method and in others, I, I'm not sure about TMI, they don't spend a lot of time talking about how important it is to learn to control the breath. But in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha talks specifically about it in the sense of uh, making sure that you know it's an in-breath on a long in-breath. And to make sure that you know that it's an, an out while you're doing a long out-breath. Now, this long in-breath and this long out-breath actually is not 100% uh, filling up and 100% depleting, but it's an easy, comfortable breath that you could say goes somewhere. Uh, most people, I would say, would be going between 40 to 60% in their normal shallow breathing. That when is they it, breathe out, they only go down to about 40. And when they breathe in, they only breathe in to about 60% of capacity. We're going to change that from like 30 to 80. Okay, That's so slightly bigger than normal. Like we're instead right. of like 40 to 60, it's more like 30 to 80. Mm -hmm. And but I guess I'm going to go up to 100 to try to top it off. Okay, it's like going go to a to gas 100. station you know, uh, to fill up your car. And once the, the bump comes off, a lot of people will shake their car and then try to get a little bit more gas, especially if it's really cheap gas. Then we try to top it up, you know, got to get the air out of the tank so that we can get another quart of gasoline. And... Is it a deliberate breath? Um, as in like, okay, this it is, is deliberate. deliberate, but it's not deliberately topping it up. It's just deliberately gotcha. making sure that you're getting a long, nice, deep in-breath. Okay, yeah. And that it's a controlled breath, controlled, long, deep breath. Here's the reason for that, by the way, that if you're watching the breath in a normal way and the breathing is normal, it's actually still being controlled by the reptilian brain. The brain has two ways of controlling the breath or uh, operating the breath. One is through a back in the back uh, of the brain, um, fairly close to where the heart is controlled. The breathing is controlled naturally. If the reptilian brain was not doing this job, then every human being would die during the night. They'd stop breathing, <laughs> right? But we continue to breathe in the night, but we generally don't breathe very well and it's shallow. You could think of it, in fact, that the reptilian brain is really lazy and that we also have uh, issues of flight and fright, which has the quality also of freezing, that when there's any fear, we tend to shut down our breathing. So now we're going to intentionally bring that breathing back up to a, a higher level, a more noble, uh, uh, normal level, so that we can uh, make the mind fit for work. We want to actually energize the body even to the point that the body begins to tingle. You can feel it, okay? So you're going to make sure that you can breathe really well so that you can get a, a good, full uh, exchange of air. When we breathe in, we breathe in oxygen. And when we breathe in uh, over a period of time with several good deep breaths, then that means that the blood 
now has more oxygen level in it. And also, when we're breathing out, we throw out pollutions. One of the pollutions, the more primary pollution, is carbon dioxide. You probably know, by the way, that carbon dioxide and water mixed together form a carbonic acid. They call it acid rain. Okay. Oh, yeah, so it's like kind of changing the balance of the gases. Right. So by breathing in and out deeper, we're actually changing the pH levels of the blood. That's and right. yeah, also, that's, go ahead. I, that's a kind of like the opposite of what I've been doing. I've been trying to like kind of background the breath um, and kind of just watch it kind of very neutrally. So, yeah, that's very interesting. I can't wait to try that out. Yeah, this is Anapanasati, though. This is not the practice that is normally taught and not only that but people who read books are not likely then the book for instance is not going to say hey now that you're on page 80 you should be reading page 4 right now you're on the wrong page of the book mm -hmm. books don't do that Yeah, books don't set us on fire they don't give us real inspiration uh, about how to practice and so that's one of the problems with uh, with with reading Dhamma books. And a lot of students will spend huge amounts of time during the day reading all of these Dhamma books without doing correct practice or actually without ever being around anyone who actually knows the Dhamma. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been there. <laughs> okay, so now that we're looking at the breathing, you can also see that just taking these long, deep breaths intentionally has a number of benefits. The one that I was about to mention was is that on the out-breath, not only is it carbon dioxide that's thrown out, but it's other pollutions, the breakdown of amino acids. They've even come to understand that uh, sometimes people have kidney problems simply because they're not breathing well, hmm. which means that the kidneys now have to do all the work that the lungs should have been doing all along of purifying the blood. But if we're breathing well, then the kidneys don't have so much work to do because a lot of the stuff that's coming out through the kidneys would now go right out of the body. Tiny little bits of amino acids and other things like that that uh, are basically the breakdown of adrenaline, cortisone, and other uh, harmful chemicals that are in the body. And yet whenever we have feelings of fear or anger, there's going to be a certain amount of leakage of these kind of chemicals into the bloodstream. So by taking good, long, deep breaths, we're actually throwing some of that stuff out. This is one of the yeah. reasons why anxiety can be easily dealt with through deep breathing. Because anxiety is a tension that we have inside that's based upon blood and all that kind of stuff. So by deep breathing and breathing into that area of the body, that anxiety can be released. Hmm. Okay. So, the next point about waking up, sati, to wake up completely, means that now we have the ability to do right effort. The right effort, then, is the effort to actually get out of bed, rather than just merely waking up and thinking, oh, I'm going to stay in bed for a while. Because this is exactly the way that people practice in the sense that they wake up enough so that they can <clears throat> investigate and see what's in the mind and so that they can know dukkha. They can see it. 
before it was there and they don't see it. <clears throat> Sometimes we wake up, we have sati, and wake up to the fact that there's no hindrance, that I'm good to go. But that doesn't happen a lot. Most of the time there's kind of junk thoughts or things in there. Um, and so this waking up has to be strong enough so that we can actually take the effort of getting out of it, just like we take the effort to get out of bed. This is what we mean by right effort, to take that effort to throw out of the mind those thoughts that would be considered hindrances because they're hindering us from being in a pleasant state of mind. Okay, so we, we wake up, then we're able to kind of see the hindrances, and then we use what power we have to kind of to weed, weed out with them out. Uh-huh. Now, the Buddha gave a, um, uh, let us say, a little phrase for that that he started to use when he was under the bow tree right after he uh, decided not to uh, do uh, self-flagellation and starving himself and doing those kind of things because that didn't work any better than Jhana did. And so he started to eat. And when he started to eat, his companions that were with him took a hike. They left. They just said, I don't want anything to do with him anymore. He's not practicing anymore. He's gotten fat. Well, if he was really thin because he was starving himself, it wouldn't have taken very many meals for him to start putting on weight. And they could see it quite right away that he's getting fat. I mean, if he had, an, uh, let us say, a 12-inch waist, and he's gone to a 14 or 15-inch waist, then they can see that. <laughs> All right? Now, by the way, nobody has that kind of waist. I remember in Gone with the Wind that Charlotte O'Hara was really unhappy because she couldn't get it back down to 20, 20 inches, <laughs> a 20-inch waist, because she'd had a baby and it was at 21. So... We're talking about that when people are at this level of thinness, it's really easy to see when they start putting on weight. Oh, so like he was, the Buddha was thin. He was like a very thin person, but they could tell that he'd been gaining weight over some time. And they yeah, were like, and then he started we're done gaining with this. weight we're really gonna... quickly. Okay, dang. And so they left him. And so after he gained his strength back, he's on his own now. And what he does is he finds a very desperate what they would in those days call a spooky, a haunted, but in our frame of reference, we would call it a dangerous place, a place where few people go. And that's the why he chose Bodh Gaya, which was very close to where he was anyway. Um, and it was there in this dangerous place where he sat for probably about six weeks. And in that time is when he put together and figured out the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the... Uh, uh, he had already been doing Anapanasati for uh, quite a while anyway, but that he began to understand how to put it together. And that the way that they uh, were doing that was be one phrase that the Buddha had, and that is, Aha, I see you, Mara. Now, Mara here is used in the sense of, um, it can be defined as the world or as devil, but here we're using it in the sense of mental conditions that are not conducive to being in a good state, okay, the hindrances. So when he says, aha, I see you, Myra, he's saying, aha, I see you, hindrance. I see you, junk thought. I see you, anger. I see you, fear. I see you, um, uh, 
thinking about an, an argument that you had with someone. Okay, I see the past. I see the future. Uh-huh. I see what's going on in the mind. This is what we mean by sati, is to fully wake up and to see what's going on. But that fully waking up, and not only to see what's going on, but to recognize that that is dukkha. Now, some people will say, okay, yes, I'm going to see the dukkha. I'm going to say dukkha. I see dukkha. I'm going to learn from dukkha. I've got insight from dukkha. I'm looking at the dukkha. I see what I'm doing. I understand it over and over and over again. And that would mean that the Buddha does not teach dukkha, dukkha, naroda. He just teaches dukkha. Dukkha, 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 dukkha. Watch closely. Here's the dukkha now. Do you see it? Gain some insight. Here's dukkha. This is not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha is teaching dukkha, dukkha, naroda. When you see the dukkha, come out of it immediately. Aha, I see you, Myra. Is a statement that is not Myra. It's an aha, I see you, Myra. It's a different thought. That's actually a liberating thought. So we have Myra, 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 Myra. Aha, I see you, Myra. It's a wake up. We wake up and we see that that stuff is actually dangerous. We wake up and recognize that that, that thought's a hindrance. It hinders me from being in the state of mind that I would actually prefer to be in. In other words, it boils down to this. Do you want to live your life the way that you have been living it in the ordinary way that you were taught by all of the other people and so you live that kind of life that is actually driven by emotions that become the boss. Your choice from that, which is the old comma, is to make a change, to say, no, I'm going to feel the way that I want to feel. I'm going to think the way I want to think. This is basically your choice. Are you going to go for dukkha? or Dukkha Naroda, and you have that choice every minute, every second. All you have to do is see that you've got the choice. You can wake up out of it. You don't have to feel that. Okay. So I guess the difference there, so it's kind of that aha moment. It's not uh -huh. a being like, yes, like I observe the suffering. It's like, oh, there's suffering. Like I can choose not to be in, like, I can choose not to embody that. Or mm -hmm. like, I don't know, there's some, I don't know, there's something I don't quite get about, like, it seems like they're almost, so you're, this you're, is the, he's in right view, so he can kind of see it as, like, not quite a part of, well, I don't want to say them, themselves, but, yeah, kind of like that, I guess, I don't know, I'm yeah. kind of lost, but, yeah. Well, now, let's, um, um, let's understand then that, that when we see the Dukkha, our job right now, in this absolute present moment, is to throw that stuff out. But by seeing it, we've already started to throw it out. If we actually see it and then taking the right effort. And so right effort has two qualities. One is to start taking the long, deep breaths. And the other one would be to throw the hindrances out. And to feel the relief. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about Aunt Susie right now. Okay, so like we, I'd be going through my life in the normal mode that everybody does. You know, some suffering would arise or like, um, I don't know, anxiety. I'd be blasted with anxiety. And so I would be, aha, uh -huh, anxiety. Like I see, I see you. I, I, I would, can see you. I can see you as opposed to just being like, oh, dang, I'm really anxious today. I'm just going to live with this and like hopefully tomorrow's better. 
Right, because now you're living with it, and hopefully tomorrow is better as the only, as the way that you've been living your whole life already anyway. And so the effort there is like deciding not to be entangled in that and taking the Precisely. deep breaths, choosing uh-huh, a different I path. I see you. I'm out of here. I, I am not that anxiety. And like the, I guess the Anapanasati, that's kind of like us being able to cultivate the ability to do that and say, ah, I can see you Everything fully. Everything about Anapanasati is in fact skill development. That's the actual verb on each one of the 16 steps. Basically what I mean is, is that the Satipatthana, four elements, each has four steps of Anapanasati with each one of them. So there's four elements with the breathing, there's four elements with uh, feeling, there are four elements with mind, there are four elements with mental objects. The first thing that we want to know about mental objects is, is this hindrance or not? Later we'll work with mental objects in the sense of what's really worth having uh, thoughts about. What is worth having uh, the mind focused on? So there are mental objects that aren't hindrances? Yes. Okay. What, uh, another way of saying it that people think that the word attachment is, has to do with uh, Buddhism. To don't attach to anything. The Buddha says no. We actually only have four modes of clinging, but there are many things that we actually do want to attach to. Oh, really? Oh, so clinging is different than attachment. Right. Because attachments may be, in other words, um, if, you're, if you're on a bus, you want to kind of attach yourself to the seat. You don't want yeah. <laughs> every time that the bus moves that you're just all over the place. Yeah, it would not okay. be a fun bus ride. <laughs> Okay, another way that you would want to attach yourself is to this present moment, to be here now, to keep coming back, to attach ourselves to this present moment. Oh, another okay. way would be the way is to look at it to attach ourselves to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, or to attach ourselves to correct breathing. Okay, so we have okay. to understand that the four modes of clinging have to do with these four modes of clinging bring on suffering. In fact, we just talked about that in the sense that clinging will bring on these woeful states of anger, wanting things we don't have, doing what we're told to do without hope for a reward, or uh, all dressed up for battle, but afraid to go into battle, all dressed up and no place to go. Uh, And that's basically what we mean by frozen in fear, that we become afraid, we get got get locked up it's like the child who is well rehearsed he knows his lines but when he walks out on stage he freezes he's forgotten everything right this is the state of asura is is that we're we get lost we we're um we're we're full of fear full of trepidation we don't know where to go and you've been in that state before many times even with clicker on their on the television, and you don't know which station to go to. Yeah. Okay. And so the state that I'd be shooting for would be one where, like, I guess more a knowing state of like knowing the path forward, as opposed to being like I don't know where to go. Exactly right. Or better still, to drop where we got to go and be satisfied with oh. where we are. Yeah, it's like, I guess I threw in some seeking in there where it's like there's still some driving, but like kind of the recognition that 
I don't have to go towards the, you know, the, uh, sorry, the, I forget the word that you mentioned, but yeah, you don't have to go towards that, like, anxiety or the fear or the confusion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now let's investigate a little bit more about one's right effort. One's right effort, then, has, the, has twofold. One is to start taking long, deep breaths. The other effort is uh, to throw the hindrances out. And we actually are throwing them out when we make that statement, aha, uh-huh, I see you, anger. Uh, I see you uh, wandering thought. This is actually separating ourselves from it. Or another way to look at it is, is that this is a new thought. The old thought was, uh, I'm going to tell Susie all about what we didn't argue with. I'm finishing my argument with Susie. And they said, wake up, wait a minute. I see that argument with Susie. I don't have to have that argument with Susie right now. I'm sitting here just enjoying my moment. <clears throat> it's the right action. It's kind of like diverting We're from changed. going back we into the cycle. Go, right. If, if the mind itself is already capable of changing from thought to thought to thought, Freud called this free association. That we have one thought, and then we have another thought, and then we have another thought, but we don't intentionally decide, I'm going to have this kind of thought. But now we are. Now we're going to take the effort that I'm going to start controlling the kind of thoughts that I have. And that the first kind of thought that I'm going to have is going to be, let's get the hindrances out. And now I'm going to have thoughts about this present moment, including thoughts about the breathing, thoughts about the body, thoughts about what is the rising and the falling, what is the touch of the cloth. How do I feel the air around? In other words, we begin to get fully more in touch with the body itself by watching the the breathing, and we become much more knowledgeable about the body. Also, by thinking about the body, we're in fact thinking about the here now. When we're thinking about the breathing, we're not thinking about last month's breath or next year's breath. We're thinking about this breath right now, in this present moment, to come back to this present moment is basically what the practice of Anapanasati is all about, is to come out of the hindrances, the past, the future, out of restlessness, worry, doubt, wanting things, or hating things. Or even the last one would be the dull mind. Because we can come out of dull mind, the main reason for people having a dull mind is either it's one gotten very tired because you've been doing something for a long time, but more than likely it's because you haven't gotten enough air. And if you start breathing deeply, then that uh, uh, drowsiness and dullness can be uh, removed by watching the breathing and taking deep breaths. So now that we're beginning to get this change of mind, we can add in step 10 about Apanasati. Now, before I add step 10, I'd like to at least go over what we've been doing with step 9, which is that sati, to wake up and to see what the mind is doing. To wake up and know the kind of thoughts that we're having, to know the kind of feelings we're having, and to see what's going on. This is sati, to wake up fully to it. And then we change it. This is actually a change, an activity, 
you could go so far as to say, well, if we're going in the direction of non-doing, why don't we just go in the direction of non-doing? Which means once I wake up to these thoughts, why should I do anything about them? Why don't I just sit there and watch these thoughts? Which means to stay in hindrance. But the Buddha talks about it in another way. He says, no, we're talking about action that leads to the end of action. Rather than just hoping that the action will just sort of exhaust itself on its own. So it's like kind of going back to the elimination of suffering versus just watching the we're suffering. Going There's to like an grab action it that we can throw take. It out. It's not going to say, aha, uh-huh, I see you suffering and I'm going to keep watching you until you die. Okay, sorry, I'm a little slow. I guess you said there was ten steps. I guess like I didn't catch the numbers on like one through eight. I thought it was just like ten. Oh yes, okay. So we've been talking about step nine. This is the way that it goes: four for the body, one, two, three, four. Fourth of beings, five, six, seven, eight. Step nine is the first step of the mind. When we first wake up, at step nine, fully waking up, that means that we actually. Um, note and experience the state of mind that we're in. Is the mind in hindrance or is it not in hindrance? Is it bright? Is it dull? Is it sharp? Is it focused? Is it fit for work? Or is it drowsy? In other words, we're beginning to evaluate the state of mind that we're in. This is actually an investigation. So it was four four for body, four for feelings, one for uh, mind, and now we're getting to... No, four for mind, nine, four 10, mind. 11, and 12, and okay. then four for mind's objects, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Okay. Okay. So step nine is the first thing that happens, though, and that's sati, to wake up and look at what you're doing. The next step is step 10, is to gladden the mind. This is, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I see you. Mr. Wondering Thought, because that aha is actually a change of our mood from being in the suffering into waking up into a kind of joy, that we're gladdening the mind. Aha, I can see you. Yeah, it's a okay. whole lot better than, gosh, I'm stuck in it. Yeah, it's like the, no, there's like the, there's a, there's space between you and that disassociation precisely that before we were associated with the the thought i am the thought i am the feeling now aha i see you feeling aha i see you thought is a kind of a disassociation before we were selfish now we are not selfish why when i say aha i see you myra that means i am not in the myra i am not myra I've come out of it. One is selfish, the other one is not selfish. When we wake up, we can see that uh, the thoughts that I was having were selfish thoughts, like anger. How can we be angry if we're not selfish? Yeah, okay, yeah, so you're not, yeah, you're, you're no longer embodying the, the anger or like that. Right, that but we feeling. can still see it, but we recognize I am not. That. You can see it for what it is, like you have that, that view where you can and see it accurately. see it for what it clearly. is means, and we don't want it here. This is not me. Now, like when you say we don't want it here, um, I don't know. There, it, so 
do you we want kick it out angry? or do we want it do we like ask it out or do we just befriend it no, or like want, what's the want to throw it out throw it out okay we want so we to just let it, it okay we want to make sure that it goes out and we can do that with um with a new kind of language in other words if we talked ourselves into getting angry then we can talk ourselves into getting out of being angry you could also go so far as to say we could use meta at that one point in time by saying, well, I really hope that my argument with Susie didn't harm her. I hope that she's going to be okay. I really don't want to harm Susie. I'm just having angry thoughts about Susie. So I guess like our effort there to kick it out would be kind of the antidote to that particular. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, like, like, an a new thought that you can begin to control your thoughts, just like we're learning to control the breath. And that the um, basically the the first or the intermediate goal here would be to be able to control your thoughts so that you have wholesome, valuable, useful, wise thoughts. And we can avoid the hindering problematic bad feeling thoughts and we st and we begin to look what kind of thoughts am i having am i having thoughts that are free from suffering or am i having thoughts that are associated with being dissatisfied and so in order to be able to like kind of apply that and able to like kind of switch from having like more positive thoughts or like weeding out the bad thoughts we need to be able to step into this proper view and this proper attitude to be able to actually, for lack of like, communicate with these, you know, parts, the, the things that we don't want to be there to be able to like talk to them. Because like, I know personally, like if I just try to sit here and talk myself out of a bad feeling, that doesn't work. But there's like kind of that pre the prerequisites to be able to. Oh, but you can't. <laughs> How do you know you can't talk yourself out of a bad feeling? Um, Normally, I mean, when we're in bad feelings, we just keep talking to ourselves about the bad feelings rather than talking ourselves out of the bad feelings. Like with, with Metta, of saying to ourselves, well, I really don't want to have an argument with Susie. I want our, our relationship to be nice. I really like Susie. There's no reason to argue with her. If we have to start having those kind of thoughts, those are different thoughts than the thoughts that we're having about, um, Susie, you're wrong about that. I got to tell you what is good. You know, this is the uh, being stuck in it, but now we're having thoughts of coming out of it. You can talk yourself out of feeling bad. So you would say like, okay, if I feel like there's something that I'm particularly stuck on, it's kind of my belief that I'm stuck on that, or like it's my inability to see the way out. When you say stuck, you're talking about a time frame over a long period of time. Stuck and stuck and stuck and stuck and stuck. Okay. Let's not look at it that way. Let's look at it as what's happening in this instant. In this okay. Very I gotcha. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah. In like the moment, you're right. And so in I guess what I'm talking about is the reoccurrence. I'm not really mm -hmm. talking about it existing for a long time. But yeah, yeah, I, I can talk myself. I can be like, oh, well, like, yeah, Susie, I'd rather just talk about, like, you know, the football game or something as opposed to, like, bringing up all the gossip and whatnot. 
Exactly. All right. So if we now that you recognize that, because that's sometimes hard for students to recognize that they can, in fact, change what they're thinking about. And by changing what they're thinking about, by changing the topic, they change their entire mood. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, there's it definitely possible. I'm yeah, it's kind of weird to notice that. Yeah, I'm kind of like when I it, yeah, like the things that they arise and they go out of my attention. Um, like very quickly and when I say that I'm stuck on something I'm really not talking about it just being there forever I'm just talking about it popping up more often well you're beginning to wake up to the fact that it pops up often so the better you wake up the more often you're going to see it pop up but the idea then is is that oh no things are getting worse the more I meditate the more bad problems I'm seeing yeah, that's it's but felt it's like the that. other way yeah. around that the more sati we have and the more often we wake up to it and the more we're going to see it. It's not the dukkha increasing because our practice is increasing. It's that our knowledge of the dukkha is increasing. OK, yeah, thing that's that's really it's interesting because I mean, yeah, that's no, oh, they know all about it in the Goenka retreats, even uh, 50 years ago or 40 years ago when I was practicing with Goenka, that they knew it then. The story is, is that on the first day, students come in and they sit down and their job is or their instruction is to watch the breath. And if the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again come back with a mind that's clearer and focused and sharp, et cetera, like that, that whole spiel that Goenka gives. Um, on the first day, the student may see the mind wandering away from the breath four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times during that uh, first hour or the first um, uh, each hour for the first few days. But by the time he's been practicing six days or more, now he sees the mind wandering away from the breath 50, 60, 70 times during that hour. And so now the student says, oh, monkey mind, oh, monkey mind. I'm beginning to realize how monkey mind it is. Well, the monkey mind is not changing. What's really changing is the fact that you're waking up to this monkey mind. Dang, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I definitely went through a period of time where it just felt like, you know, my practice isn't like, I can just see all the, you know, harm that I'm doing. I don't know if you're like that. Yeah, it's just like everything is like was just much more keen to pick up all the bad things I was doing. It's like, dang, this is like not really helping me. Mm -hmm. So imagine that there is a store that keeps losing inventory, but they don't know why. But they only notice from time to time that was there before and now it's not there. It's, it's something has happened. But then they post a guard. And now the guard is going to be watching so that if any thieves sneak into the store, they're going to be caught. Okay. Now we're going to start catching a lot of this shoplifting or a lot of this thievery because we're guarding for it. Because you're In more, yeah, you're we more awake to we it. We weren't watching. It was just happening and we weren't paying much attention or when we began. But later, let's say that guard is, as he's uh, keeping his job, he's actually gaining skill. So that now he's a really great guard. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so this is where we're going with it is, is to recognize that we will see these things coming back and recurring and recurring. But 
we already know that we can catch it one time and throw it out. We can catch it again and throw it out. And we can catch it again and throw it out. So that we eventually come to the conclusion it doesn't matter how obstructed or how often obstructed the mind becomes, I can still throw it out and bring myself back to a nice, pleasant state. Yeah. That's like the, one that that's a major point, and we'll talk about it later. This is the first step of the path. The first knowledge is no matter how obstructed the mind is, I can throw that stuff out and come back to a state of seeing how things are right now to see things the way they really are. Hmm. This is actually part of a sutta. This is the first knowledge that is super mundane, it is noble, it's a factor of the path, and it is not held by ordinary people. Most ordinary people, in fact, do not have that uh, deep knowledge that they can straighten out any problem that they have. No. Look at all the professions that cater to people who do not think that they can solve their own problems. The cosmetic industry. Right? They sell products to ladies so that the ladies can feel better about the way they look. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a million so the industries just like cosmetics because they don't know how to feel good about the way they look without the cosmetics. But you also see the clothing industry, especially the sports clothing industry and all of that, because people are wanting things from the outside, expecting that the cosmetics, the clothing, the alcohol, the doctor, the psychologist, everybody is going to help me. Even religion, taking Jesus as my savior, and then I'll be saved, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. People have the idea they can't fix it themselves. This is basically the second noble truth. The second noble truth is you got yourself into this mess. You can get yourself back out of it. There is an end to suffering. The end of suffering. You got yourself into suffering. You can get yourself out of it. Actually, I prefer the word um, uh, unsatisfactory or dissatisfying Uns yeah, that as opposed to suffering. In fact, you can see that suffering is a Christian's definition of the word dukkha. Yeah, you I mean, I think really, really suffering. We're going to hang you up on a cross, you know, <laughs> that's suffering. Yeah. Hmm. But if you go around telling people that there's uh, that they're suffering, you can wave a book in the air and says, I've got some Dhamma, I can help you from that, all your suffering. And people will say, I'm not suffering. I don't need your book. I don't need your Dhamma. But if you can talk to people, they will all admit that, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff in my life that I'm unsatisfied with. I'm unsatisfied with politics. I'm unsatisfied with my clothing. I'm unsatisfied with my job. I'm unsatisfied with my wife. I'm unsatisfied with my car. I'm unsatisfied with my kids. And on and on and on it goes. But they're never suffering. They're just dissatisfied with everything. So, so that's the problem with the definition and using the word suffering. Whenever you use the word suffering, you have to. Uh, it's better for you to go back and think of the word dukkha, means merely just being dissatisfied, a little bit of dissatisfaction. 
Yeah, everybody looks at you a little weird when you say suffering too many times too. <laughs> so you had dissatisfaction. Okay. Uh, yeah, it so, just seems to make more sense. Just, just like the word suffering uh, and concentration are two words that are way out of bounds for what we're actually practicing here. These are wrong translations. Hmm. By the way, my favorite is bowl. Bowl? As far as wrong translations go? Yeah, it's a wrong translation. In fact, it was, it's the most stupid of all. Of, so. of all of the wrong translations. Well, you see... On a, on a Catholic uh, table, uh, the altar, they will have a bowl. Bowl is a sacrament or um, an object of sacrament. Mm -hmm. And a bowl is uh, shaped in a way that the, that the flanges, the edges go out. And that uh, the design is to have a lot of room for the bowl to... <clears throat> <coughs> Uh, to be used by cooling food. Also, a bowl, the way that a bowl is used is normally it's set down in front of you. You pour food, uh, the soup or whatever, into the bowl. You, you let it cool. You eat, the bowl, uh, you eat the bowl of food, and you leave the bowl where it was. That's the way that we use a bowl. The opposite of that is the word pot. And what is a pot? A pot is something that you cook in or you, you keep it. It's got a flange lid that goes up like this, so that or a flange uh, top lip, so that you can put a lid on it. Monks carry a pot; they don't carry a bowl. <laughs> Why not? Or because like it's because meant it's to actually things? physically it's a pot. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's got it's a lid. It's not a bowl. Okay. A bowl would be hard for them to use. A bowl is generally shallow. A pot is normally deep. What do they need the pot for? To carry food. And they oh, actually, sorry. when they're off on Vendabot, uh, uh, they, they use it to gather food. But when they're on Walkabout, when they're on Tudong, then they'll carry in the pot everything they own. Oh, no way. I didn't know they did that. So, like, the monks... As they're like traveling, they carry around the pot, and then that contains all their. Well, there's only three months a year that the monks stay in one place. Other than oh, that, okay. they're just all over the place, yeah. going from teacher to teacher and from wat to wat and all kinds of stuff like that. That's a tradition not only in Thailand and all over the Buddhist world, but it's also true of the uh, uh, the Asian Buddhist in in America. Of about the three hundred watts that I know of, they all. Not everyone knows everyone, but there's a huge network of friendships and communities. The abbots of the Laowat will know the abbots of the Taiwats and all of that kind of stuff. It's very, very deeply friendship connection oriented. And do they they travel around? Um, do they where do they stay at? I'm sorry, what do you say? Wherever they're going. They walk wherever they're so they walk to. Um, Let's say if someone was watts? going to be traveling by car from Washington D.C. to Los Angeles, then along the way they would stop and spend the night at a particular temple, and they'll have it all arranged in advance. And so the four nights that they need to spend on the road would be at four different new watch that they go and oh, stay wow. at night. Dang, that's, they've got to be really busy <laughs> walking around. What for? What nine months out of the year? Right. So, um, back to the, the to the point, not about the, the the bowl, 
but just that the translations of many of the words are um, misleading. Yeah. Monk. Bhikkhus are not monks. Metis are not nuns. How so? I mean, I guess like I'd just consider a, a monk well, somebody who's kind of an expert or like somebody who's an ascetic. Right. Well, the monks that I know of in Christianity, <coughs> they basically have a schedule. Not only a schedule of what's to learn, but a schedule of uh, what to do during the daytime. That everybody works at a certain time and whatnot like that. But within the uh, uh, bhikkhu tradition, it's just forest dwellers. There's not a lot to do. So there's not a lot of arrangement of time. It's a complete freedom to where uh, the Christian monastics are really locked down. Yeah, they probably stick to a pretty strict schedule. Yeah, to where the bhikkhus are not. Dang, that's really interesting. So they're kind of free to do what they want to do. Um, mm -hmm. What I heard you say, like, I don't know, some podcasts where, like, um, most of their time's unaccounted for, like, I guess you're obligated to do lunch or, like, some sort of meal or something, but most yeah. of the rest of the time is... When I was in the United States and the people would ask, what do you do all day? I said, well, hmm, the only thing I do regularly is lunch. And so you're, what, you kind of... How do you get advice? Like, um, I guess, well, you would just talk with the other monks or like if you're having yeah. a particular trouble and I mean, I guess everybody's around. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes, because it's all of a network of friends. It's a network of noble friends. That's nice. Or that's a wonder. Yeah, it's a wonderful sentiment. It's really nice. Well, we need to bring that to the West. That's, that's the thing that's missing is that noble friendship. Yeah, it, I would definitely love to see that. Well, that's one of the things that we're beginning to do with, with Spud. So you've got already something going for you by being in it uh, in Seattle. Yeah, that's, I'll, I'll have to check them out. That's really exciting. Okay. Uh, Noah is one to get to know. And Eric and Jim, these are guys that you'll want to get to know. I'll send you uh, Skype links for all three of them. Great, yeah. Uh, so, back to the point. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. And that is with right effort to change the mind, to gladden the mind, we begin to also now work with the, uh, uh, the, the second tetrad, which is Vedana, the feelings. Because we begin to feel good. If we can, in fact bring the mind out of the dukkha, out of the hindrances, by saying, aha, I see you, Myra, then that means now the mind is free to start doing things that are more wholesome. <laughs> and so uh, at this level, we look at uh, two Pali words. One is pity, and the other one is sukha. The word okay. sukha is the exact opposite of the word dukkha. This is true in the Pali language, it's true in the Thai language, and it's also true in Gujarat, I just found out, that uh, a student says, yeah, that's right, Suki and Duki are in Gujarat language opposites of one another. One is dissatisfaction and the other one is satisfaction. So in order to be free from dissatisfaction, we want to cultivate 
satisfaction. Satisfaction is actually step um, six of Anapanasati Sutta. Satisfaction, step six? Satisfaction, suki or sukha, which means uh, it's translated wrongly as just pleasure. But a much better way of looking at it would be the following. One is the state of sukha uh, has the quality of safety, security. It has the quality of satisfaction. It has the quality of success. And it has the quality of contentment, almost to the point of satiation. Do you know what I mean by the word satiation? Um, like satis, well, kind of like satisfied. It's like a, you, you don't need anything else. Completely satisfied, like a bucket that is overflowing. You keep putting water, you know, you turn the faucet on and it fills and it fills and it fills. And now all the water that you put in flows out because the bucket is completely satiated. It's yeah. completely full up. Yeah, there's okay. no, no space left. Right. There's no place for dukkha left because all we've got there is satisfaction. This is what we mean by satiation. Now, this is actually a skill to be developed. Oh, okay. So you can cultivate sukha? It, this is something that's to be cultivated. Well, you cultivated dukkha. You've been cultivating dukkha okay. your whole life. <laughs> now <laughs> we're going to start cultivating the opposite of that. We're going to actually bring, uh, build the skill of satisfaction. The next one is step five of Anapanasati is what's called pity or rapture. Now, what we mean by pity uh, and by the word, the, t uh, the English language word rapture is probably about the worst of all the translations. I don't even know what the word rapture means. Yeah, it sounds kind of spooky. But the words, but the word pity actually means the feeling of success, the feelings of I can do it. The feeling of um, uh, the winner. Remember when I was talking about the first uh, uh, knowledge of no matter how obstructed the mind gets, that I can throw it out. That's yeah. that knowledge that I can do. That's the pity. That and and you can think of it as like a, uh, a winner's mentality. Huh? Okay. It's like a full confidence. It's like, uh, yeah, like that, the knowing that you can, you can the knowing like, that you can it do out. it, exactly. And so you can cultivate um, sukha and PD. Yes. Okay. They and are so, to be cultivated. In fact, let's look at um, uh, them together. Let's look at what pity and sukha have in common. One of the things they have in common is uh, safety and security. It also has uh, satisfaction, but pity has uh, a whole lot more quality of success or the winner's quality. So an example then you could say is, is that pity and, and sukha are in fact the same thing. It just is a matter of how much energy there is to it because pity is exuberant. It yeah, is, it is full on. It is energetic to where sukha is more of <sighs> relax. Is that kind of like, well, PD would be kind of like, I think you mentioned in some interview, like the lion attitude or like 
Yes. Okay. Why? Yeah, like I can kind of understand now why it might be. Yeah, a like winner. Hmm. confidence. Yeah, I get that distinction that you're getting at. It's like, yeah, one's this, you know, what relaxation. Uh, su- um, suka is more like this relaxation, like um, satiation, like good, um, um, wholesome mm-hmm. feeling, and then you have the like confident, like lionish kind of I'm able to cast out dukkha, like that confidence. Okay. So let me give you two examples in the real world. Yes, you've got it. Two examples in the real world. One is on the football field. Uh, uh, One team makes a score. They they make a touchdown. And for the people who are uh, uh, following that team, they will stand in the uh, raise their arms in the air and cheer. Yay! Okay. And after they do that for 10 or 15 seconds, then they'll sit down on the bleacher. They'll probably look at each other with a smile, or maybe they'll look at the scoreboard and feel really satisfied. Okay, so that touchdown sparked off both Pitti and Suka. Another example, on New Year's Eve in, in uh, many cities, especially in uh, New York, they have the dropping of the ball. And everybody counts 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. And then at that particular moment, when it goes down to zero in the new year, everybody starts to cheer. They jump up and down. They, they are in a state of pity. Hmm. But then within 10 or 15 seconds, then someone will start playing the song All Lang Syne. We'll all hug together and rock back and forth in... Um, uh, in in the joy of the new year, so Pitti and Suka are there at the football game, and they're there at that point in time of the um, the dropping of the ball. And you'll see that it's in fact that sequence is there often, and we want to bring that sequence into our practice. And are these like? Is kind of a vague question. These aren't particularly feelings; they're more like qualities, right? They have feeling. They do have feelings. Okay. They do have feeling. Yes, these people who are jumping up and down because of that score, they feel it. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes sense. So there's a, there's a they, feeling that it um like to these states. A, a feeling of states. success. A feeling of joy. Okay. The kind of feelings that we don't even register very much because our humanity has set it up so that the kind of feelings that we normally talk about and express and know are feelings like sadness, fear, anger, grief. Those are the kind of feelings that we normally associate with feelings. Okay. So because those are the feelings we don't have any control over. But we also have the positive kind of feelings, the things that we really like in the sense of success and satisfaction. Okay, so these are the feelings that we're intentionally cultivating, and we do that with thought. And the thoughts that we have of, wow, I see you, Myra, aha, I don't have to feel that way at all. I can sit here and take a deep breath and sigh and relax. Gotcha, yeah, so thanks for clarifying that. That makes sense. These are feelings that we can cultivate. Um, they can and these things, we will be like, we'll be replacing like anger, greed, like hatred, those things with like PD, 
in Suka. Precisely. By our like constant diligence of like weeding out uh, what Const- shouldn't be in our mind. Okay. Let us not use the word constant. Let's use the word consistent. Consistent. Okay. Because constancy gives people the idea of perfection, which gives them the idea, I, if I catch myself feeling bad, I should feel bad about that, too. Yeah, it, there's like kind of an element of seeking in there, too, where you're like, oh, I got to be diligent, but, mm-hmm. but this is a, an attainable thing, something that I can do right. in my lifetime. Yeah. And, and we intentionally practice uh, uh, sati. We intentionally practice to wake up to keep waking up, because without the sati, we can't take right effort. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now let's look at it from the perspective of right attitude, because attitude also is a feeling. The feeling normally is the feeling of being a loser, of needing help, of being one down, of being in a state of dissatisfaction. And there's also a feeling of uh, winner, the feeling of uh, success, the feeling of I can do this, the feeling of a winner, the feeling of uh, the champion. This is a feeling that can be cultivated. In fact, throughout your life, many times you've had the feeling of being really successful, but not many. And you didn't really go to cultivate that feeling. Yeah. But there have been high points in your life memorable times you can also recognize well if you felt that way before you can feel that way again so it may be an idea that's uh, useful to recollect back in the past in the childhood for what times were that when you felt really big joy because there's going to be a few of them that you remember yeah there's going to be real successes that we have i had a big success in high school one time and i remember that Okay, so we can so, remember those really big successes. Hmm. By doing so, we can cultivate that as a feeling, so that we can cultivate pity, we can cultivate sukha, we can uh, uh, remember that I don't have to feel bad right now, I can feel good instead. It's your choice. Instead of feeling the way that you're in the habit of feeling, you can feel the way that you want to feel. That's basically the entire teachings of the Buddha, Dukkha or Dukkha Naroda. And this is all through Anapanasati? All through Anapanasati. We've been talking about the deep breath of step one, noticing the body, step three. We've also been talking about pity, which is step five. We've been talking about sutta, which is step six. I'll get into the other steps later. We've also started to talk about step nine and step ten. Step nine is sati, or waking up, seeing what the mind is doing. Step ten is actually gladdening the mind. But by gladdening the mind, we also are free from the hindrances, and that's freedom of mind. That's step ten. And then later, we, uh, and it doesn't take much time, it's, uh, when I say later, it's a sequence of events, not a time horizon years from now, but rather the next step is step uh, 12, which would then be unification of mind. Part of Anapanasati yeah. and the Eightfold Noble Path, they're very closely, deeply related, the Eightfold Noble Path and the practice of Anapanasati. That in fact, you could say that 
we to practice the Eightfold Noble Path, we do Anapanasati. But Anapanasati is for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana. And the fulfillment of the Satipatthana then is the Sambhojana, the uh, seven factors of enlightenment. But the seven factors of enlightenment are nothing more than the Eightfold Noble Path in fulfillment. In other words, it's a method that we practice, but when we have those practices done, then they become enlightenment factors. Okay. And so the Eightfold Noble Path and the seven factors of enlightenment are the same thing. One is looking at it from the student's point of view, and the other one is looking at it from the master's point of view. It's like two sides of the same coin. It's like after you've gone, after you've done the journey, you can see the... Exactly. And so um, we practice the Eightfold Noble Path to do Anapanasati. We practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We also practice the Four Foundations of Mindfulness for the fulfillment of the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, which is actually now the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into knowledge and deliverance, or knowledge and freedom. Now, knowledge comes first. Knowledge would be the knowledge of how to come out of suffering. And once we have the knowledge and the skills of how to come out of suffering, then we can actually be delivered from the suffering. And delivered from the suffering, is that Nibbana? Uh, we've been having nibbanas all along. Little nibbanas. Okay. The word nibbana okay. only means cool. Cool. Oh, okay. Like a cooling. Yeah, cool. Like taking Isn't... the fire, taking your food out of the fire, and then the food will nibbana a little before you eat it. You want to eat it warm, but you don't want to eat it when it's really hot. You want to let it cool off some. And it's... yeah. Some foods are better eaten cold. Okay. I mean, yeah, I guess like um, there's like a kind of heat quality, well, not a heat quality, but like there's a anger and things like that. And it's like bouncing around a lot. And so like when they cool down, they, they tend to like go away. So it's like that kind of cool. Right. Okay. Another that way that they use Nibbana in the time of the Buddha was to Nibbana a wild animal like a dog. A vicious wild dog that barks and it bites and everything versus a dog that's laying on the porch just cool. Okay, the so training it's not of like the a, dog. It's not a like single place or like single, it's not like a heaven realm or anything. It's like a description. That's magic. That's magical thinking. We haven't actually talked about the word magic, but most of Western Buddhism is magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Most of Asian Buddhism is magical thinking, but within uh, um, uh, Western Buddhism is almost all magical thinking to where in, uh, in Thailand there are the nobles who do know the real teachings of the Buddha. Okay, and so the, uh, the, and so the Nibbana... Within that, that... within the ordinary mindset that they put uh, Nibbana way up in there out of sight. Just like they put the enlightenment way up there out of sight. You know, we're, we're, uh, our culture does that because of Christianity. That we put God way up there someplace. Rather than God right here. 
Mm -hmm. We put Jesus way up there. He's the Savior, you know. He's in heaven, and he's going to come back to earth someday, but no time soon. Okay, this is the idea. And and when we have that as part of our culture and learn about Buddhism, we begin to do with Buddhism what people have been doing for 2,000 years with Christianity, which is putting it out of reach. They want it out of reach for Christians because they don't want Christians to solve their own problems. They want them to keep contributing money to the church. And, and so, like, I guess going back to the point, there's like you said, there's the knowledge, and then there's the what? What was the next one? Like the fruition or the? No, well, knowledge and deliverance. The word deliverance, deliverance would be a better word. Would be uh, uh, freedom okay. or moksha. So let's look at the word enlightenment for just a bit. The word enlightenment is actually a fairly good word to use once we use once we understand it. Because mm -hmm. there's, in fact, two different kinds of light. The word enlightenment means light is the, in, is the key word in there. There's two kinds of light. One is to turn the lights on. Light mm -hmm. of day. Uh, um, enlightening means, generally at this level, is to wake up, to have knowledge, to see what's going on. So sati would be a form of enlightenment all on its own. But then the other kind of enlightenment is the enlightenment of not heavy. That once we see the burden and we cut it loose, now we uh, have two kinds of enlightenment. One is we saw it, and two, we're free of it. Mm -hmm. This is what enlightenment means. It's not a magical word way up there. It's not like a it, magical state that if I meditate enough, or if I get enough meditation points, then I'll then like you'll suddenly... Get eventually right. Ascend but then guru, people yeah. are absolutely correct. You're already enlightened. You're enlightened now. In that I'm being like illuminated, or not illuminated, but like in that I am like... You're already good enough. Just enjoy uh, yeah. it. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, that, that wasn't... I, I get what you're saying there. That's um, That was something kind of like that was um, a lot of the... I don't know, Advaita Vedanta, if that's the right word, people kind of say, like their first thing that they get to is like, everybody's already enlightened. Um, but I guess you're, are you saying like that we have the ability, we have the ability to see these things. There's nothing special about enlightenment. Not it's only like do we have the ability, but we use it on a regular basis. Everybody okay. does. We just don't use it enough and we don't recognize what we're doing. Is it like that the wisdom that's kind of behind the, you know, the, feeling the bad feelings and things like that or well we could talk about it more from a sense of nature that when a child is born the child naturally becomes joyous being alive is a wonderful thing everybody kind of knows being yeah. alive is a wonderful thing that's one of the reasons why we cling to life so desperately hmm. is because we recognize it's really nice it's really nice to be alive yeah but then people wind up being uh, in a state of danger because the self-preservation instinct is saying, well, if it's so important to be alive, I've got to keep doing it, which means I've got to make sure that I stay alive. And so our self-preservation instinct will then give us a lot of false positives. We become afraid when, in fact, there's no reason to be afraid. A recent example was about three days ago, the laptop died. It's only a year old, and it just flat out died. Uh, took it to the dealer. The dealer took it apart, and it's full of ants. Uh, 
But the important point here is, is that it was a laptop that died, not me. So is it kind of like die. the natural, it was the natural the state that died? Huh? It's kind of like the natural state is enlightenment. And then there's like conditioning on top of it that kind of pulls yeah, us away from the that. Conditioning my laptop. And now when my laptop dies, something in me dies, too. And we, come, we begin to have fear and anxiety and what am I going to do without the laptop? Well, I'm fine without that laptop. I'm probably better off without it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um, but yeah, we attach that, ourselves to things and then we feel miserable because everything is a state of flux. If we like something the way it is and it changes, then we're going to be in a state of not liking it anymore. And so, so then, rather than find a way of liking things, so that we can maintain that state of being in a state of liking, so, so that when a laptop does die, we don't feel bad. So it's more of like a relaxing back into where we were, as opposed to like a striving for this like enlightenment that is something else. Yeah, relaxing into a state that's already natural and already there, rather than striving for something that's magical. And way out there someplace. Sounds a little more attainable than how I was thinking about it. That's the way it is. Yes, please see it that way. That this is doable. You can do this. But when we look at it from the Western Buddhist and the Western religious traditions, we put it out there the way that we put in anything uh, associated with religion. An example of that is Christian is absolutely determined to teach everyone that they are a sinner. They have original sin. Only God is good. Who do you think you are? That you cannot do it yourself. You need a savior. Only Jesus can save you. You have to go to him to get salvation, right? Yeah, he's like fundamentally different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. To where if we recognize, no, Jesus is fundamentally just like everybody else, and everybody else can, if we would stop deifying Jesus and deifying the Buddha, and start taking their advice instead. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, thanks for telling us, I mean, I really appreciate it. Much of what Jesus says sounds very much like Buddha. It's, a, it's worth a, an entire conversation to talk about how Jesus and Buddha are very similar. The point, though, is, is that Buddha, Jesus was not around long enough to really teach and instill to his students what really he wanted to teach them. His uh, ministry was cut short. Yeah. He also had no influence to where the Buddha had... Uh, influence he knew everyone he was a uh, uh, royalty uh, and had a reputation so he could go up to anybody in fact King Pasanati and King Bambisara both uh, used the Buddha for advisors to where mm -hmm. Jesus wow he walks into the temple and throw and tears the place apart and throws the money changers out the Buddha would have gone to Caiaphas and had a nice long conversation with the head uh, priest to say, what can we do to get these money changers out of the temple and put them over there in the corner someplace outside? So Buddha would have well, taken a different view yeah. and taken it because he had the power with the um, uh, of his personality to where Jesus was 
a poor nobody. Hmm. But they taught the same things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm I'm Christian, <laughs> but yeah, um, or identify as Christian. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's that'd be interesting for me to look into. I don't know. I try to keep like a, a mental <laughs> divider sometimes. But. You don't have to keep that mental divider. What we can see though is is that ordinary Buddhism of the ordinary masses is very similar to ordinary Christianity. The problem with Christianity is they don't have or never did have that noble element of those who really understand the truth. It was kind of just the church kind of grafting onto it. They didn't quite, weren't able to quite deliver that. Is that what you're going Well, get? what happened with Christianity is it became magical very quickly. Oh, true. Yeah, miracles and... That, in um, fact, Paul, within 50 years, started turning Christianity from the teachings of Jesus into the religion of Jesus by promising people something after death. Yeah. And then Constantine really came in and messed stuff up. He basically was with the uh, Council of Nicaea, took Jesus completely out of Christianity. Mm -hmm. yeah, that didn't happen with Buddhism. The Buddhism is much more like a diamond that's been encrusted, or better still, a diamond that's so precious it's been put into a very gilded box. And now everybody worships the box without opening the box to see that the real diamond is actually in the box. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I feel like when I look at the Gospels, it's just like mostly just a man being a good person <laughs> and like having a good heart. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I mean, so... To be I, a good Samaritan, right. Yeah. But isn't that the height of humanity? Yeah, I mean, That's what Jesus is trying to teach. And yet now what you find Christianity is racist, anti-LGBT, we're better than they are, let's have a white a nationalist America. You know, yeah, a lot of times. Christianity is really, really nowhere near what Jesus would teach. Yeah, it'd be much different. If he was able to see, or I guess like, if, yeah, it's much different than the core teachings at this point. And that we also know that Jesus had certain practices that were very similar to the kind of practices that, that uh, would be known in, in Buddhism. Going into the wilderness for 40 days, for one thing, and, and uh, praying all night. Now, when he says praying all night, we don't really know what Jesus was doing all night, but he was sitting up all night. And his students couldn't. They all went to sleep. They couldn't sit up with him. Dang. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard of, like, Christian contemplative traditions. Like, there there was for a time, like, people would do similar practices. I don't really oh, know how similar. Yeah, And in fact, that would be where Jesus would come from. It was the fact that Constantine was able to strip Gnosticism out of Christianity. And, and that's kind of when it turned to more like magical? Thinking. That's when it became completely magical. Like completely now magical. it's agnostic. Because hmm. Gnostic means to know. And agnostic means we don't know. And Christianity is completely agnostic. Every Christian is agnostic. They don't know they're agnostic. They claim they're Christian. But an example of that would be that at, uh, at a Christian funeral, there are no Christians there. How so? 
Well, let's look at it from the other side of that, and that is there are no atheists in foxholes. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Why is no atheist in foxholes? Because everybody in the foxhole is scared to death, and so they're all praying to stay alive. Therefore, they're all Christians, because they're afraid of death. Oh, you're saying they wouldn't be, if they were at the funeral in their mourning, and then that's like a, they're not. Yeah, um, they're mourning, right. Everybody is sad. But uh, or... the point about, uh, about atheists and agnostics, the reason there's no atheist in foxholes is because the atheists are too smart to join the army. <laughs> or if they have to join the army, they're going to find something that they do where they don't have to wind up in foxholes. They can be computer programmers or something else. Maybe uh, I like that interpretation. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. No atheist in foxholes because only stupid Christians get into foxholes. He chose a different job. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the funeral now. The reason there are no uh, Christians at funerals is because Christians think everybody's going to go to heaven. And Uncle Billy has died. Yay, Uncle Billy, he's in heaven. Wow, I'm coming too, Billy. You just wait. <laughs> Nobody has that kind of mentality, no. What happens at a funeral is whoever is most attached to the person who's died, the wife or the husband or the father or the daughter or whatever like that, they are doing the most grieving. And so they're setting the stage for grief. And so everybody at a funeral is in a state of grief, a state of loss, a state of not being Christian. Mm -hmm. Not yeah, real I mean, Christianity. If they are Christian, it's a very low, low-class Christianity. It'd be a party instead. <laughs> they should yeah. be a party. It should be awake. Everybody gets drunk and celebrates how wonderful Billy's life was. <laughs> That's what my dad always says he wants, but... <laughs> Didn't let him have it. Promise him that. Yeah, we're going to give you a send-off. We're <laughs> going to celebrate your life. But they don't. They don't celebrate life. They all get really sad. So back to what we're talking about is, is that each individual person at that funeral has a choice about how they're going to feel, and almost all of them choose to feel the way everybody else is feeling which is being in that animal state, to go along, to get along. They're all in an animal world, in that grief. Oh, we're sad and everything. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk more about herding instincts, and in fact, all of the instincts, because it's our instinctual nature that both, number one, keeps us alive, and number two, keeps us dissatisfied. If we use wisdom rather than instincts then we can use wisdom to keep ourselves alive. And number two, we can use wisdom to feel the way we want to feel. That's, yeah. We have to break some old habits. Okay. Because we're in the habit of uh, operating out of instinct. And that the, uh, the human brain, the frontal cortex that humans have, takes up a lot of energy. It takes a lot of uh, juice. It takes a lot of calories. In fact, they've proven now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that uh, for any general individual person throughout the day, 70% of the calories he burns comes right off the top of his head. And yet look at the industries <clears throat> that have to do with exercise to lose weight. And they ump and they pump and they all do all of that kind of stuff and they burn, what, 400 calories. You said 70%? 
Yeah, 70% yeah, of all intense, of the yeah. calories we burn is burned with the brain, hmm. which means if we're waking up and we're breathing deeply, then we're actually burning a lot of calories. And by doing so, we're making this human part of the brain fully functional and capable of work. Mm -hmm. So let's use the example of the typical office worker that's in the afternoon. He gets really tired. Basically, he's not breathing. He's just sitting at his desk in a, a kind of a dull state, not breathing. And so he gets up and goes to, for a drink of water. By getting up and walking, he begins to breathe better. He comes back and he sits down. And now for about five or ten minutes, he can actually get some work done. But then he goes back into that state of drowsiness again because he's not breathing. <laughs> Dang, that's why it takes so many water breaks. Right. So take a lot of water breaks or better still take, remember to take a breath, to deep breathe. And that way we'll uh, begin to keep that part of the brain open. But mm -hmm. the point, though, is, is that how are you going to remember to take a deep breath if you don't remember to take a deep breath? That remembering to take the deep breath, that shanti, that's the skill that we need to be developing. Mm -hmm. Taking the deep breath is just enough effort. You have to wake up enough to be able to take the effort to take a deep breath. But at the same time, we want to wake up enough so that we can take the right effort, so that we can change the way that we're thinking and change our feelings. Uh -huh, I see you, Mara. Out you go. I'm not thinking about that problem anymore. I'm thinking about this present moment right now. And so and that so then us into working with the body, working with the feelings to begin to feel good and working with the mind to wake it up, make it fit for work. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the practice then of Anapanasati. And if you'll uh, recollect on some of the books that you've read, that you don't see this particular point or these points that I'm making, that, that they make other points. They don't stress the breathing, for instance, and they don't stress the joy to cultivate the joy, to begin yeah, to mean, like what we're doing. I've been trying to take a couple like deep breaths, like as you say, I'm like, oh yeah, I should remember to breathe, and it feels good. <laughs> it feels nice. I mean, yeah, it's strange. Like I've never heard that really emphasized. It seems, yeah, I'm not. I mean, like, yeah, I haven't really, at least for like this type of practice now. Okay, well now we've got. Uh, it's been about almost two hours, and we've gotten. Um, at least enough so that you can begin to practice co more correctly. Yeah. And so, so do this a couple of three days and see how it goes. And we'll continue on after that. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. You have no idea. <laughs> Great. Well, when are you going to call back? Uh, you said three days. Okay. We'll or, see you in about... Or how long do you like a week about, or three days about twice a week for the beginners yeah. and then down to maybe once a week and then maybe down to whenever yeah three days then but, yeah, I, but really this is, this is more of a cultivation of a friendship and that part of that friendship is also to introduce you to other friends so that we can begin to network and so that's why I want you to know the guys in Seattle that I already know yeah, I'll we, reach need, out to them. we need to develop a Sangha in the West. 
because we don't have one. Every student will tell, that comes say, well, I've been reading a book or I've been reading at it. But nobody comes to say, I have been down to the local temple and I really learned a lot from the monk down there. Do you know him? Nobody says that to me. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great if, if people do that. I mean, I just feel like there's something kind of missing right now, especially like it's just like very kind of wrapped up in like, you know, teacher. There's not like an element of friendship a lot of the times, which I, just, I think everybody would appreciate. Well, welcome, friend. Yeah, well, thank you very much. All right, well, we'll see you in a couple of three days then. Yep. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye.